Hello, and welcome to Podcast, the podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. But not here. Oh no, not here. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brenna B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 27th Patreon-only episode titled Sunflower, an analysis of Renly Baratheon, in which we analyze our fate. Did you did you write these fucking words? Our favorite character in A Song of Ice and Fire, King Renly, K- King Renly, first and only of his name. Those at least four of the five words are true there. We could stop the episode right here. I've accomplished everything I wanted to <laughs> by making you say that. No, since we've been do- having so much fun with these Storm's End chapters with Catelyn in the main cast, going through a clash of kings, and that's all about, of course, Renly's rise and fall in large part, we wanted to kind of put a capstone on that and have our Patreon episode this month be about Renly Baratheon as a character. We've done episodes covering Robert and Stannis, his brothers, as characters, so we thought it only fair. We try to be scrupulously fair here in the Nauta cast and cover all three Baratheon brothers with their own episodes. So now it's Renly's turn. If you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll be getting at least one of these episodes a month if you subscribe for only $5 a month or more. Our intent in doing these special Patreon episodes is to broaden out from our usual chapter-by-chapter focus and talk about some of the topics that interest us more broadly. So here you'll hear about a backstory analysis, predictions for the Winds of Winter, or in this case, a discussion of a major secondary character. Before we actually get into the episode itself, we want to recognize Lady Raj, our Mistress of Horse, formerly one of our high ladies who just joined our small council. So welcome, Lady Raj. And Lord Peter, the one we've also we've been saying recently, he has selected a name. So everyone say hello to Lord Peter, Warden of the Blackwater and Dragon Rider at the Dragon Pit. Thank you so much, Lady Raj. An excellent choice of a name. Lord, Formerly Lord Peter and now Warden of the Blackwater and Dragon Rider at the Dragon Pit. I'm very jealous. I like that title. Mm-hmm. And we also had a brand new High Lady and a brand new High Lord join in. So everyone give a warm welcome to Lady Silverwing and Lord Zack. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, folks. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate you guys' support. Each and every one of you. So... Our spoiler wing, as we say in all episodes, will potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Doug Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So to start off our episode on Renly, and again, keeping with the theme of my enjoyment in watching you squirm, Jeff. <laughs> let's try sincerely making the case for Renly Baratheon as the best king available for Westeros. Proceed. Uh, He's dead, so he's not the king of Westeros. Well, if he's dead, he can't screw up. I mean, really. (laughs) That's true, yeah. Robert does the most good after he's dead, inspiring the Brotherhood. He manages to not fuck that up because he's a corpse. So really, the best king is a dead king, I think is what we're saying here in the Nauticast. No, but sincerely, pull yourself together, grind your teeth, make the case. Okay, all right. So, yes, Renly Baratheon... The best case for him I can summarize in just a few lines. The first thing is that if you surround him with good, decent people like your Davos Seawurst or your Brienne of Tarths, and they counsel good behavior for Renly and they don't enable the bad behavior, then Renly more likely than not would just go with the flow. He's very seemingly flexible, able to kind of take himself and morph himself into whatever the people around him want him to be. They want to, He wants to ensure his, po- his continued rise in popularity and the best way to make new and very shallow friends is to do exactly what they want to do. <clears throat> I'm sorry, you said no shade? I'm gonna, who cares? Secondly, um, he's able easily to, and this kind of goes up from the first point, he's able to easily make allies and make alliances out of former enemies, which is very Robert-esque. You know, Robert was able to take 
former enemies that fought against him in the Stormlands go out hunting with them and then come back and they would be the best of friends and they would die from in battle. That's a pretty significant political skill that Robert has. And in Renly's case, he's able to take the Tyrells, who, again, besieged Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion and hope to kill Stannis and or Renly during that siege. And now Renly marries the daughter of the guy who tried to kill him. That's admirable at some level that you are able to make friends out of former, former enemies. Finally, and this is the best, again, the best case I can make for Renly as a king, it, it would be unlikely for Renly to actually father bastards that could potentially drive Westeros into a massive fucking civil war. And that's about it. What about you? How would you how would you make the best case for Renly as, as king of Westeros? Well, as you were saying, he's very flexible. He's very much what you make of him. He's a Rorschach blot. He's the Red Comet. And if he's, you know, blown in the right direction, absolutely. If he if he if the good times hold, then I think Renly has the potential to be a very good king and remembered fondly and probably have his mistakes overlooked because he was generally popular and, and you know, thought well of. I think if he ran up against real crises, I think we start to see hints that that's not going to go great in what little we get of him as a leader in a clash of kings. Because as soon as Stannis challenges him at Storm's End, he races ahead of not only his infantry, but all his supplies to come to groups with him, which as Catelyn point, pointed out, Robert wouldn't do only because you have Ned advising him. And Renly lacks these people that you're pointing out could, could pull him in the right direction. So that is definitely a worrying sign. I think the best aspect of Renly, the best case you can make for him as, as a great king, is his ability to charm people and win them over. I think that's very important, especially for, for winning the throne, for assembling a coalition. It didn't, didn't turn out to necessarily help Robert in terms of holding power together. I think the Tyrells are definitely less like avaricious and outright sadistic than the <laughs> Lannisters. But on the other hand, Robert had a potential broad-based coalition to draw upon. He didn't have to just rely on the Lannisters. He ended up just kind of relying on the Lannisters till the end, unfortunately. But Renly would really be solely reliant on the Tyrells for power and wouldn't be able to check them if their worst instincts took over. So I think that is a bad sign. And again, you know, these are... These are too much of a good thing situations, mm-hmm. which is always the problem with Renly. It's not so much that he lacks assets or lacks good features. It's that everything we see of him senses that these things are going to be misdirected and wasted. It's not like, oh, no, a potential, you know, Magor is on the horizon. That's not the worry with Renly. It's like mm, w- w- when this party stops, it's going to turn out to be nastier than anyone suspects. It's like kind of like an egg on the fourth scenario where like he has like a he was a bad king. So probably much, much worse than Renly is. But in terms of like his lifestyle was very opulent and overflowing, full of love, if you want to call it that, wine and song, which is what Renly at least surrounds himself with in his interactions we see him with Catelyn in A Clash of Kings. He doesn't necessarily partake in either of those things to seemingly excessive standards the way that Robert or Aegon IV did. But I do see that there's an atmosphere which could potentially be disastrous for the realm in the long term if Renly ends up taking the throne, surviving and bearing, I guess, he would have to have an heir at some level, um, whether he's able to produce one right. or not. He has to have someone there. I, I do think that the atmosphere does kind of breed some destabilizations within the ruling class of Westeros, as it did in, historically in Westeros. And Renly would be the the guy to kind of like be the person to kick over that pot and spill it all over the place. As you say, a lot of it depends on the air. We really don't have any sense about how Renly would be. That would be years down the line. Potentially, he could be a, a sober and, you know, even-handed, you know, father and, and mentor. Potentially not, who's to say. But, um, yeah, a lot of it is, of course, is kind of a kind of an open question because we don't get to see where Renly goes. And a lot of what Renly's character is about, of course, is about, you know, misspent youth and the possibilities kind of kind of drying up. 
And it's very difficult to say, you know, how, how he would have been. And we're a lot of what we're, you know, kind of doing this is just, is just kind of scraping for clues, especially when we get into the, the backstory of Renly. And that's, I think, what we have to move to next is talking about the kind of the, the meta history of Renly's character and, and why he exists other than driving you crazy, of course. <laughs> a valuable use of any secondary character, no doubt. Mm-hmm. So the, the initial pitch letter in its barest bones does not dwell upon Stannis or Renly. Initially, it seems that the war in Westeros prior to the arrival of the forces of ice and fire was going to be contained to Stark versus Lannister, with Mance and his wildlings hovering around the margins and having some kind of impact. And there is an interesting kind of chicken or the egg question here. Did George come up with Stannis and Renly as stopgap measures to keep the war going when he realized the story was going to take longer? Or was it coming up with Stannis and Renly that necessitated the story growth in the first place? Or to put it in more gardening terms, what's the seed and what's the flower here? As we've said, some aspects of Danny's story feel like she's marking time. There's still a lot of interesting aspects, but they feel like George is coming up with them to keep Danny going. And same thing for the younger Starklings. So I would argue that these characters were not the ones motivating the growth of the story. Rather, it was George's investment in secondary characters. Not only did he love these characters in themselves, but he seemed to have realized that they offered the chance to make his story more intricate and expansive than others, to buttress his main characters in a way that gave them more flavor and more richness. Number one on this list is Jamie, of course, who appeared in the pitch letter but in a much different and simpler form and clearly grew in the telling. I think Stannis and Renly are also up there. Stannis and Renly are perfect archetypes that allow George to throw down markers in terms of style, dialogue, and theme. So many emotions and images are tied to one or the other. So many backstory characters are versions of one or the other. Clearly, these two archetypes were rattling around George's brain in inchoate form, and Stannis and Renly exist to perfect them on paper and so lay the groundwork for his major characters, the OGs from the pitch letter. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I think it's a fascinating thing about Renly and Stannis not appearing in the pitch letter. I mean, it's also fascinating, too, that if you go back and you read the letter that George sends to his agent, he's also, in addition to the letter, he sends 13 chapters of A Game of Thrones forward. So if they are the first 13 chapters, and that's not a guarantee they are, but I think it's more likely than not than they're likely very early in the story. But let's just say for argument's sake that it's actually the first 13 published chapters in A Game of Thrones. It's we only actually get one reference to Stannis and what one reference to Robert's brothers in a Game of Thrones brand two. So my kind of meta theory about Renly and Stannis, how they came into formation, is that these references to the King's brothers was a later rewrite after the pitch letter was originally sent forward to his agent. As George likely realized that these characters both existed, one, and two, would play roles in the story going forward. To get really, really in the weeds. I think this decision to put the younger Baratheon brothers in prominent roles in the narrative came about after George decided to make his trilogy into a four-book trilogy. So as we know, George originally had wanted a Game of Thrones, a Dance with Dragons, and then the Winds of Winter. So he only had three books originally. Now it's seven books in total. But at one point early on, when he split a Game of Thrones into two books, a Game of Thrones and a Clash of Kings, he called it a four-book trilogy. So I think the the basis for the four-book trilogy was the introduction of these two Baratheon brothers and the expansion of the narrative out, out. And perhaps, too, the expansion of the Stark-Lannister conflict to include, you know, the Greyjoys was another part of it, too. These are reasons why the book A Clash of Kings exists in the first place. 
That's an excellent point. I mean, so much of a Clash of Kings, is, you know, swirls around these factions. And the way it ends up playing out is that it feels like, oh, the Lannister v. Baratheon war was the one building and the Starks, you know, came in as outliers when really in the writing process, it's the other way around, which I think is, is really interesting to, to, to play around with. And Renly specifically on his own, apart from Stannis, I think also exists so George can interrogate the image of the good king in fantasy, the one who comes to save the day, which is something that the pitch letter doesn't really do. He may have intended Robert to function as this deconstruction, but then realized that since uh, Robert has kind of gone to seed, <laughs> we don't actually see him in his glory days, he needs a ghost in a golden crown to fill that role. And I think it's interesting sitting in 2020, not good, not bad, just interesting, how culture has kind of lapped George on this part. We don't really need this deconstruction anymore. We're kind of cynical enough. People, I think, can can peel back the surface pretty easily, more than they used to. And similarly, Renly being gay is no longer as big a deal. It's something that people note and move on from or, like, wonder why it's kind of implicit rather than spelled out. Like, that's more the discourse, I think, where about like, the Renly-Loris relationship at this point. It's not like pointing it out and remarking that it exists. It's, you know, wondering, hey, why isn't this more explicit the way it is in the show? Because that's kind of where the discourse has moved to. And again, that's not a bad thing or a good thing. I think that's just interesting to note as, as a marker how, how the pop culture has moved around this kind of character. And as we've been rereading A Clash of Kings for the main cast, I've been appreciating Renly as a character more on his own terms rather than as a deconstruction of a pre-existing image at all. He is a fascinating and frustrating politician, surrounded by imagery that undercuts him even as it bedazzles him. His life and death both have the quality of something that slips through your fingers, evaporating into the memory of a gesture, a shadow on a wall. I'm glad A Song of Ice and Fire was changed to make room for him, because I think A Song of Ice and Fire is a sadder and scarier and stranger and stronger story for Renly's presence. Absolutely, man. I agree with that 100%. The story is strongly with is stronger with Renly. You know, something I consider about with writing is how conflict and narrative blocks work in both narrative fiction and in A Song of Ice and Fire specifically, and how they kind of can and can't work in lesser fiction. You know, in a very perfect universe where everything goes well, which is of course not a song of ice and fire, Stannis or Renly would steamroll all opposition to the ground in a clash of kings and the march to King's Landing. But they don't, and the main reason is Renly and Stannis, or both at the same time. And, you know, I've, I've been watching, you know, those lesser fictions. So I've watched <laughs> this time of lockdown <laughs> and quarantine. I've watched a fair number of TV shows and movies. And one of my recent rewatches was the movie Legends of the Fall. Boy, that movie, fantastic soundtrack. But without spoiling it too much, the narrative tension revolves around three brothers and the love of one woman. But so much of the narrative tension and the blocking that the narrative integrates in for these characters, it's really kind of artificial when you actually like watch it. There's an attempt made at establishing these guys as characters, but little of that establishment flows into the main conflict of the story. In my opinion, anyways. That's really, really not the case for Renly and Stannis. George basically took Robert's neglectful rule of Westeros that we saw at the tail end of it in Game of Thrones and then expanded that lens out to show how Robert's carelessness is bone deep, man. It goes all the way down to his family. And that tension and conflict that Renly brings to A Clash of Kings, it flows first from the establishment of Robert, then Renly, then Stannis from afar. As we know, Stannis does not appear in the narrative in A Game of Thrones, but Renly is there. So when a character like Renly comes into his own in A Clash of Kings, his actions spring from established characterizations and narratives that we're familiar with from reading the first book. As we've talked about in our analyses of the prologue and Davos and Catelyn's chapters in A Clash of Kings, both Baratheon brothers are seeming opposites, but they contain core similarities and both vie to be Robert's successor and both vie for Robert's love. 
You make a great point about how the politics and the personal are brought together in A Clash of Kings and how they're really one surrounding Renly's character. That's something we've been discussing in the main cast with the Catalan chapters about how Renly and Stannis are both sorting out very different ideologies and working out very personal grievances. And it's you know something that's that's realistic about any any form of power that is, is always trying to negotiate these the, the politics versus the personal and what separates the person from the office and you know, clearly the systems we're working through in this series, you know, invest a great deal in the sacred body of the king. And we can critique that and compare that to other systems. But, you know, obviously, you know, bureaucratized and centralized systems have their own blind spots that that, that crop up and that we haven't found ways to deal with. It's it's just interesting to look back through a modern lens at that. And I think you're, you're right that uh, George does uh, an unusually good job at, at not just reducing his characters to stand-ins for the points he's trying to make. He wants them to to feel like real people operating in, in these systems. And I think he does a good job of that with Renly because Renly could easily fall apart as a character under the amount of like just images and ideas thrown on him because he doesn't have that much time on the page. So he could just very much come in and stand in. It's like, hello, I'm a stand in for the idea of the good king being flipped <laughs> upside down. Aren't I interesting? But I think George does a lot of good, good work kind of, kind of grounding him. We're going to get a bit more into that later. But uh, talking more about kind of just what goes into sculpting him as a character, we've talked about kind of why he exists, the role in the narrative he gradually came to fulfill, moving into kind of more the material, the raw material George is working for, the kind of historical parallels and, and fictional and backstory parallels that he's working for. And I think that from from my limited pool of knowledge, the primary historical parallel from Renly is uh, George, Duke of Clarence. You know, when we talk about uh, the War of Five Kings, obviously one of the big inspirations for it was the War of the Roses. George was a third son, like Renly, of Richard, Duke of York, who was a central figure in the War of the Roses. Like Renly, George was uh, bestowed upon a great deal of titles despite his young age, advanced up, you know, rapidly in the chaos as a ladder of the war. And like Renly, he abandoned his birth family in favor of his found family when the, you know, the, the stars were rising in the Civil War. George joined his father-in-law, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, in rebelling against his brother, Edward IV. Now, uh, George, Duke of Clarence, eventually changed, changed sides again in the war after he realized Warwick wasn't going to make him king after all. The parallels start to fall apart here, as you can see. Overall, I think what probably happened here is George borrowed the framework of that initial structure of, of George's double cross and his, his family relationships, and he married them to what he wanted to do with Renly's character, the archetype of the good king he was planning on deconstructing. That's like the thematic core of Renly's character, and then George drew like the structure from the War of the Roses. Yeah, and, and I love the, the way that George has done that throughout A Song of Ice and Fire and borrowing from history and also borrowing from mythology too. As he's saying, as he said so oftentimes in the past, he's kind of like takes these things and he steals them. So he steals a page from history in order to craft these characters. But then he also kind of remixes them and brings in some other things like mythology. And I think there are a number of potential myth mythological inspirations which George drew inspiration from. And most of them relate to Renly's role as usurping the authority of an elder brother and then getting killed as a result. So in Greco-Roman myth, Renly could have been inspired by Ramus of the Romulus and Ramus story. And in one telling, Ramus was killed by Romulus for his mockery. Again, Renly is not killed for his mockery specifically in A Clash of Kings, but that character trait of his is very present in the story. And then in Egyptian mythology, could Renly have been Osiris, god of fertility, agriculture, life, and vegetation, who ends up getting murdered by his brother Set, who of course is god of chaos, fire, deserts, trickery, storms, envy, disorder, violence, and foreigners? Does this sound familiar? Does it sound like a parallel that George might have been putting into A Song of Ice and Fire? 
And then finally, we've referenced this in the main cast as well, but Jacob and Esau are potential inspirations for Renly and kind of the mythological side of things, as Jacob stole Esau's birthright and succeeded Isaac as his heir. Again, these are not one-for-one inspirations that George is pulling something and saying like, ah, I'm going to now tell retell the story of from mythology of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob is going to be Stan, Jacob is going to be Renly, and Esau is going to be Stannis. Instead, like you were saying, he takes a lot of these historical sides and he intermixes them, remixes them rather, and makes them into a much more interesting story that fits the narrative. He also is taking these mythological sides for um, mythological sides in, in world history and then intermixing that with this, the historical side and creating these different types of characterizations, which become very prominent and important in crafting a person such as Renly. These images resonate with us because they've, you know, they, they've lingered over time because they've resonated. We've kept around figures associated with spring and summer that are associated with laughter and mockery because that's what we associate youth with. And we associate youth with spring and summer and we associate winter with the coming of death because that's what we associate hard times with. And hard times, you know, breeding us kind of a, a bleakness and a loss of innocence. And so you you form these figures and you form these stories around these ideas and these natural images. It just makes really common sense. And I think if you look at the the backstory with A Song of Ice and Fire, how George has kind of worked through these obsessions and other characters, characters who don't appear in the main series, the primary backstory parallel for Renly is, of course, Damon Blackfire. He, too, was a handsome, charismatic warrior king, taking full advantage of the chivalrous image of the Reach, which was the heart of his power, just like it was Renly's. Damon, too, was rebelling against the rightful heir, his brother Daron II Targaryen. Of course, Damon declared himself the rightful heir, that he had the, he was actually the, had the, the better claim and that he was the king with the sword. But of course, he was also relying in large part on looking the part of a perfect king and having everyone have a good time around him and associate him with what a king in the story should be, just like Renly does. And of course, Damon was killed by his sorcerous brother, Bloodraven, who ruled through a, a system of fear, a regime of fear involving many spies. And Renly was killed by his sorcerous brother, Stannis, who rules through fear. And Melisandre establishes a kind of a spy and enforcer network in his name. I think another backstory parallel worth noting, which is not dissimilar to Damon, is the fate of the Gardener Kings of the Reach. They too were associated with flowers and song and sex and wine and good times. And they too, of course, commanded the forces of the Reach. And they, too, went up against the King of Dragonstone with his fearsome black shadows. But instead of Stannis and Melisandre's shadow babies, it was Aegon, his sisters, and their dragons. And they, too, the gardeners, died for it. And, you know, just as the present-day Tyrells carried on without Renly under the Lannisters, their ancestors smoothly took over the post-gardener reach for the Targaryens, which I think is something interesting about this historical pattern. As devastating as the arrival of the dragons or the shadow babies is, it doesn't wipe out everybody. There's always someone next in line waiting to take one step over and, you know, take over from whoever was destroyed. There's always someone waiting in the wings, ready, ready to seize power. You can't kill everyone. You have to actually have some survivors in order to rule the lands that you're attempting to conquer there afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked a lot about before about Renly as the ghost of Robert, the form and not the substance. But we can also look at another Baratheon that George R. Martin was writing about prior to finishing A Clash of Kings. And that is the character Lionel Baratheon, the Laughing Storm. And he was a character who made his first appearance in George R. R. Martin's 1998 novella, The Hedge Knight. Have you heard of it? It's from the Duncan Egg series. I hear it's good. Not sure. One way or the other. Chick, it's kind of like Chick on the Egg on who inspired who here, but Lionel Baratheon laughing at his enemies kind of reads as a literary inspiration for Renly and Stannis at the Storm's End parlay. 
the thing is, is that Lionel at some level seems to have a little bit more substance than Renly. And there's also the potential, too, that George was just not done writing a Robert Baratheon type characters. And that's why he wrote this character, Lionel Baratheon, after Robert Baratheon had died in the first book. That being said, we've all known Renly in our lives, right? We've known that charismatic guy who was effortlessly charming and had dozens of friends, but little substance beyond the charm. What I mean is that Renly is um, Slick Willie, that is William Jefferson Clinton, our 42nd president of the United States. He was against welfare reform before he was for it and against balanced budgets before he was for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And perhaps also too, Renly is kind of me at multiple points in my life where I didn't have a lot of substance, but had a fair number of friends at, at points in my life. Um, so it's <laughs> Jesus Christ! This, Jeff, this podcast is going like way that, off the rails that, quickly. That was that was humble in a couple of ways. That was very sweet, Jeff. But yeah, I agree also that like this is, you know, this is like the 1996 election to a certain extent. Stannis versus Renly. That Stannis is very much like a Bob Dole kind of Republican. And yeah, Robert and Renly, do, they do have kind of a, a Clinton era Democrat feel to them for sure. I think I don't, you know, I don't think that's the overriding purpose of the Baratheon brothers by any means. But I do think that is a flavor that creeps in there for sure. And I, I think that is interesting to consider because, you know, we should consider what George is drawing from historically, when he's writing them, you know, what kind of stuff he reads. And we, should, we, we shouldn't value one of these necessarily over the other, but try to consider them holistically and see what picture they inform these characters, even secondary characters like Renly. Maybe especially the secondary characters because they're not the overriding ones in George's imagination. So he has to rely more than ever on myth and pop culture, you know, to kind of form them out of these bits and pieces. So... To kind of move kind of one one circle closer to the actual character of Renly Baratheon and, and talk about him, talk about his personal backstory, who he was before Song of Ice and Fire. We don't know that much, but we can glean a fair amount from, you know, what we're given. He was born in a 277 or 278, somewhere in there. He is the youngest child of Stefan Baratheon and Cassana Estermont. There is a considerable age gap between Renly and his older brothers, who are themselves a bare year apart. And there is a theory that Stefan and Cassana had another son after waiting so long because they were specifically trying to produce a, Targ a, a Targaryen-adjacent woman to marry Rhaegar. And they, you know, they were looking for a bride for him uh, before he ended up going with the Martells. And if so, there's a real tragic quality to that. Like the Baratheons could have been tied to the Targaryens once more, but wound up rebelling against them instead. Renly can't live up to the reason for his conception, and so the redundant brother interferes with Stannis' claim instead of buttressing Rhaegar's. It all kind of falls apart on multiple levels. And, of course, Stefan and Cassandra died shortly afterward, hunting down that Valyrian-blooded bride that they couldn't find. And I think, you know, Renly, well, of course, it's horrible to lose your parents at any age. He might have been too young to directly personally grieve in the way that Stannis and Robert did and end up being raised by Crescent and might have been sheltered from it. Again, I'm not trying to like criticize Renly for that. I'm just saying emotionally, I think he went through a, something of a different reality than they did. You know, I was, I was thinking about that in terms of like when my father died when I was six, but I had three younger brothers and my youngest brother, well, not my youngest brother. My second youngest brother was only two years old at the time when, when my father died. And my mom has always said that like he could, he could, even though he couldn't process what had actually happened, like there was a real sense of emotional loss for him, even if he couldn't quite understand it in the way that my myself and my other younger brother could understand it. And kind of like speaking of the tragedy side of it, in a 2005 So Spake Martin, George talked a little bit about the growing up experience of Renly in a kind of a bleak type of way, in which he said, the problem Stefan Baratheon faced when looking for Valyrian blood was not that there wasn't any left, but that he couldn't find any appropriate females of noble enough birth. Then, of course, he and his lady died on the way back, a tragedy for Stannis and Renly. 
Rhaegar ended, ended up marrying Elia of Dorne, another tragedy. At the very least, Stannis had some sort of relationship with his parents, with Stefan believing Stannis as a boy being too serious. That's why he had sought and fetched out Patchface to bring him home to make Stannis laugh. Renly never had a father figure, never had a relationship to his father that existed beyond being three, maybe four years old. Crescent tried as best as he could, but a maester's power really ends when the child realizes who it is who has the actual power in the relationship. The tragedy for Renly, I think, as we're talking about it, is something that we explored in Catelyn's fourth chapter. He never had a mom and a dad who can step in to resolve disputes between him and his brothers and Stannis in particular. He also never had these figures to stand in and love him. So in a way, you can almost look at Renly, similar to Robert, as constantly seeking the affection and love of the people around him in order to make up for the loss of the love that he did not experience from his own parents. And I find that sad. So here's me relating to Renly. Look, everyone, it's me relating to Renly Baratheon. Well done, sir. I know you could do it. And I think, yeah, if you put him in family context, all the Baratheons kind of become sadder that way and the way they hurt each other, didn't help each other, made, you know, opportunities for each other impossible sometimes without realizing it. And you have sad old Crescent kind of watching powerlessly as it all goes down. We see that so wonderfully in the prologue to A Clash of Kings. Crescent remembers Renly as a, a bold, laughing child, running around and telling stories in which he always seemed to be playing the starring role. And as far as younger sons and the Song of Ice and Fire go, yeah, that seems to be how it is. You can see a connection to, like, a Garyon Lannister or Benjen or Bran, who will himself be king in the end. But Renly was never forced to grow up and take responsibility like Bran. Yet nor did he divorce himself from power and go into exile like Garyon or Benjen. Instead, Renly evolved into the worst of all possible worlds, a popular <laughs> person at the center of power with no incentive or inclination to take any of it seriously. Everything came naturally to Renly, arguably even more so than Robert. Renly is a considerably smarter politician, and he knows not to follow Robert into alcoholism. But precisely because everything came naturally, nothing ever registered as important. Nothing ever put down stakes. There were no consequences, no adversity, and no growth. As a master of laws, he seemed to have been a non-entity in terms of policy, allowing Littlefinger and the Lannisters to corrupt his brother's court. He was always happy to provide Robert with another drink, happy to get on board with the plan to assassinate Daenerys, and really no help to Ned until the very end when it was already kind of too late. And was he actually helping Ned at the very end? That is the question that we have left right, that's course. left ambiguous in a Game of Thrones. And because we also don't know anything about Renly's tenure as Master of Laws, I kind of analogize Renly to a black hole. We know black holes are there, but we only know them by what we can't see light and gravitational pull. Uh, we see we know from what we can't see, light, but we also see it from the gravitational pull that they have in. When we talked about Robert's rule of Westeros, we couldn't really point to any substantive policy accomplishments made by Robert that wasn't war or done by John Aaron. And Robert bears the lion's share of the blame for why this was the case, but Renly bears a little bit of culpability as well. We don't hear about any judicial reform of how Renly worked as master of laws to big for a more equitable system. We hear nothing at all. And yes, that is part, a, a core part of the, my foundation of frustration with Renly Baratheon and how everyone loved this guy for doing exactly nothing to help the small folk in any official capacity. About the only thing, and I have to like dig deep for this one, about the only thing I can see is when Sandra Clegane throws the golden antlers onto the crowd during the hands tourney and Redley heads into the crowd to quell the violence. That's it. That's his accomplishment as Master of Laws. And as Stannis notes about Renly, what has Renly ever done to earn the throne? He sits in council and just with Littlefinger. And before you say that Stannis is being a grump, which of course he is being a grump, point us all to something substantive that Renly did as Master of Laws. Please, someone. 
message me, reach out to me, let me know. Also, while you're here, if you could point out to me what the Master of Laws does exactly as Hall Council, <laughs> I'd also appreciate that as well. Brindley didn't take his position as Master of Law seriously, as you were noting. He was a friend of the worst small council member in the form of Littlefinger. Why do people like this guy, say the Democrats of the 1980s about Ronald Reagan and the Republicans of the 1990s about Bill Clinton and me in 2020 about Renly Baratheon? Why? Well, I mean, it's, you know, people make very specific personal relationships and people feel like they're, you know, if you're they're they're in it for you and fighting for you and. Even if you can say that, you know, point to like, oh, they're not helping you out in this way. They're actually screwing you in this way. A lot of people have a very base level cynicism about everyone in power. And people think that anyone who's making little gestures, even if those might be objectively insignificant, is doing more than the rest of them and should be valorized and praised for that. And I think you can see a version of that going on with Renly. Like, yeah, we can say like, oh, he threw out a piece of gold. That sure changed a lot of people's <laughs> lives that day. In fact, it led to people just fighting and kicking each other over it. Arguably led to more problems. But, you know, that's we, we get to say that that's not necessarily the perspective of the people having to deal with it day to day. And um, but, you know, then on the flip side, I'm, I'm saying all of that. But also there's a there's a certain brittleness and shallowness to Renly's support as massive as it can be at the right time. You can leverage those relationships, but they can run up hard against other realities of power. Renly was the Lord of Storm's End, a huge advantage over Stannis. And he made several strong personal relationships in the Stormlands, like Brienne or Courtney Penrose sticking by him through thick and thin. That really does matter. But they don't all flock to him as king. A lot of them hold back. A lot of them treat with Davos as well, despite Renly being their liege lord. Renly's core of support is in the Reach, and that also defines his political style. Now, we don't know many details about his relationship with the Tyrells, but this is the relationship that defines his life, just as his relationship with Stannis is what defines his death. Stannis' wedding to Selyse, Florent, can be interpreted as Robert's warning to the Tyrells about what would happen if they defied him. Keep, you know, sticking with your Targaryen loyalties and I'll have Stannis and his Florent wife take over the region, <laughs> see what's left of you after a few months. But on the other hand, because Robert does want to make his, his enemies into allies, I think you can interpret Renly taking Loras to Foster as Robert's declaration of the good that can come from sticking by him. And that worked. As a result of the renly loris relationship, the Tyrells become invested in making Marjorie Robert's queen. They want to be in the tent pissing out, so to speak. Renly undoubtedly wanted to become the true power behind the throne as a part of that relationship. But I wonder if it's, it's also possible that, given that he seemed to think of the Tyrells as his true family, given how cavalier he is about his brothers, maybe... Maybe maybe he thought of them as like the true royal family of Westeros, the royal family that should be. Loras is his partner, his other half. Mace is his father now, not Stefan, a man Renly probably doesn't even remember. Garland is the brother he chose, not Stannis. And while Marjorie nominally becomes his wife, in reality, she's probably more like the sister he never had. This should be the royal family of Westeros for him. And when Robert dies, Renly crowns himself to make that happen. And it does happen. Without him... <laughs> The Tyrells enter royal politics in the Song of Ice and Fire. They become part of the royal family of Westeros by marrying into the Lannisters, not the Baratheons. And then Olenna turns up in King's Landing talking shit about Renly and poisoning her new royal grandson-in-law, just moving right along. This is how the Tyrells saw Renly. He saw them as his family, and they may have seen him nothing more than as a vessel for power outside of Loras. And you know what? I think that's kind of sad. Admit it. Okay, yeah, it's sad. It's sad in a way like the Cleveland Browns getting clowned by their own ineptitude despite having a massive, amazing roster in the 2019-20 season sort of way. That's the type of sad that this is to me. In my opinion, and this is just me being a hard-nosed, 
person, perhaps, Renly jumped into bed with the Tyrells, knowing full well that Mace Tyrell was using him for a grandson to sit the Iron Throne. Renly and the Tyrells were scheming to enhance Tyrell political power in King's Landing since at least the time that Stannis was still at court in King's Landing, because Stannis notes in that parlay that he that Renly was plotting to plant Marjorie in Robert's bed. So Stannis at least knows about this. So this plot is is going on well before Ned Stark arrives in King's Landing, essentially. He knew who he was getting in bed with and why they were using him. That being said, I will admit, it's sad when you can see Renly jumping into bed with the Trolls in hopes of wanting and gaining the love of his brothers that he never received from them. As George once said about Robert's relationship to Stannis and Renly, he's asked, you know, who's correct when Jamie said that Robert could hardly stomach his brothers in plural form, or whether their relationship was a little bit better. George said, there are many different kinds of love. Robert was dutiful toward his brothers and no doubt loved them in a way, but he didn't necessarily like them. His relations with Stannis were always prickly. Renly was the baby of the family and spent little time in Robert's company until he was old enough to come to court. I suspect Robert was fond of the boy Renly, but not especially close to him. I think that says a lot, you know, like fond of the boy, but not close to him. That hits home for me insofar as like some of my relationships with some of my family goes in that these are people that I I think they're are fond of me, but I'm not especially close to them in any like deep, meaningful way. I like them. They like me, but we are separated by a, a number of age gaps. My father was the youngest son and his older brother, oldest brother was 14 years old when he was born. So a lot of the, my cousins are 20 years older than I am. So that's Fine, they're fond of me, but not as they don't they're not especially close to me. So that's sad, I guess. I can relate to Renly. Here's me relating to Renly again, guys. You asked for it, you're getting it. And Renly certainly found love with Loras, but I think maybe he thought his in-laws cared about him more than they actually did. Elena speaks pretty scornfully of him. I don't know if Mace was invested in him more, I don't know if Mace was invested in him as anything more than like a sperm donor, basically, when it came right down to it. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, if not tragic, I think there's some kind of just like there's a brutal reality to that about what lurks under the the storybook image of the the summer nights and their their song and sex and wine. And that's just what happens with Renly and the Tyrells. And we've covered Renly's rise and fall pretty extensively in the main series, you know, in, in the main Nauticast recently in The Clash of Kings, so we're not going to go into that here. But, you know, moving on from his death into his legacy, such as it is, what is Renly's legacy? On one hand, Renly has no legacy, and that's the point. When all you are is an image, you mean nothing when the image fades. When all you are is an army, you, win, you mean nothing when that army splinters and picks new leaders. Renly is not associated with any policy or ideology. He does not transform any systems or institutions beyond selecting Brienne for his Rainbow Guard, which does matter. I think that often gets overlooked, and I think that is important, even though I don't think there's any indication that Renly thinks of it as a big deal. <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's a limit to how much credit I'm willing to give him, but that is an important change. That's the only one, though. King Renly Baratheon was all about the good time you had around him. This is a titanic political strength if deployed well, but it is the very definition of fleeting. He embodied youth. And youth only achieves clarity in retrospect. It only takes shape when it's gone and can't be brought back. Just ask Robert, who, unlike Renly, lived to learn that. Damon Blackfire's followers kept the fight going for generations. It ain't over yet, actually, judging by young Griff, who we'll get into more in a little bit. Renly had no heir or political program to make that possible. I think that Hyle Hunt, who bent the knee to Renly and swore him his sword, puts it best in A Feast for Crows. Renly? Who was he? No one cares. No one remembers. 
Hmm. That's yeah. I, I've always loved that quote from Hao Han, who's a really interesting minor character that deserves a lot more uh, study and, and fascination with. And I think also too, like Catelyn's observations of Renly as a quote ghost in a golden crown. It strikes me not just as foreshadowing of Renly's fate as a spirit returning into the air, as Catelyn notes in Catelyn's fourth chapter in Clash of Kings. It's kind of like the medieval. It's kind of the medievalish version of an empty suit, right? A prominent person regarded as lacking substance, personality, or ability, according to the Oxford Dictionary definition, which I did not totally just Google about 20 minutes before this episode started. Renly hoisted himself up on the image of the chivalrous young Robert without the faults of his later years, not the alcoholism, not the sexual assaults on Cersei, not all of the bastards that he he ended up not raising. I was about to say raising father. Let's say, let's go with that. It kind of bears repeating here something we brought up about Robert's reign, that beyond winning the Greyjoy Rebellion, Robert's legacy was non-existent. The realm had peace, sure, for most of the reign, beyond that Greyjoy Rebellion, which I said just before, but this seems more to do with Rebellion-era marriage alliances that had been established before Robert took the crown and John Aaron's steady hand at the till in keeping Dorne from going into open rebellion against the crown, as Tywin Lannister notes to Tyrion and A Storm of Swords. Renly is even less substantive than Robert. And as you were saying, the moment the morning light comes into being, Renly's ghost fades as men becomes Stannis's, Joffrey's, Tommen's, Young Griff's, Daenerys's. So many, <laughs> these guys go so, turn like jump to so many different sides in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think that is speaking something to the legacy of Renly Baratheon, ultimately about what a ghost in the golden crown actually means for the people who are following him. Strong but weak at the same time. That's what makes it interesting, that's what makes it frustrating, and that's what makes it poignant. The idea of Renly, the shadow he cast on the wall of the dazzling, charming hero king who would save the day, that idea outlives him, as it turns out. I love the twist of Garland Tyrell turning up in Renly's armor to play his ghost at the Blackwater. It gets across the strength and hollowness of Renly's image at once. The image of Renly is so powerful that it gets a bunch of Stannis' men to surrender and come back over to his side. He's a figure of myth, almost sacred and saintly to them. But it's not him. Hmm. It's the Tyrells using him as a vessel, literally this time, wearing Baratheon colors even as they dig in their roots all over the capital. When Dantos calls them Lannisters with roses, he may be more right than he knows. Just as the Lannisters sat a twin-cest baby, both of whose parents are lions on the Iron Throne, and called him a Baratheon, the Tyrells arrived to take power disguised as Renly Baratheon. It's uh, how ironic that Garlan, who we hadn't even met before the battle, is the one wearing Renly's armor. Not Loras, the first Tyrell we meet, the one who loved Renly the most. Loras seems angry and ashamed about that when he confesses to Jaime in A Storm of Swords that it was his big brother who wore his lover's armor into battle because Loras himself was too slim for it. To Loras, this feels like an admission of weakness. He literally was not a big enough man to step into Renly's position, and so his heterosexual big brother had to do it for him. But if only Loras could see that his family just got Renly's image. Powerful as it is, when deployed right, it's all surface. Loras got the heart, the body underneath the armor, and that's what matters. Loras buried Renly's body somewhere no one would find it, he says. Somewhere private Renly showed him at Storm's End. And that's Renly's legacy. A small plot of earth somewhere that no one will ever find. Sealed by devotion, remembered only by the love of his life. That is far more humble and intimate than the legacy Renly wanted to have. But it's also more than Robert ever had. And it's more than Stannis is going to get either. 
Yeah, that's true, man. I mean, Robert had at least Ned to mourn him briefly before, of course, Westeros fell into chaos. No one is really going to mourn Stannis, and that'll be exactly what Stannis wants, right? No, not cool. Of course not. But Renly's got someone who will go somewhere only they know. Remember that song? Good song. It's an okay song. And I think that's poignant. I think it's poignant that Renly has a small plot of land that Loras can come back to. And it's one of the reasons why I hope that Loras ultimately survives the story and doesn't end up a charred corpse on the shores of Dragonstone. That he has the ability to go back to Renly at some level and that even if we don't have it confirmed in the epilogue for A Dream of Spring that that's where Loras is, we can imagine that. And I think it would be right and true to imagine that Loras is out there with Renly one last time. And I was really desperately trying not to spoil Fever Dream. But if you have not listened to Fever Dream or read the book, skip ahead about eh, 30 seconds or so. But there's the final ep- So, three, two, one. The final epilogue for Fever Dream has Joshua York coming to Abner Marsh's grave every single night and visiting him. And it's such a moving scene in that ends Fever Dream, makes it such a poignant, amazing story that's such an emotional heart to it. And I imagine that same sort of emotional impact would be felt if we knew that Laura survives and that he's going back to Renly's grave every night. Mm, That's perfectly said. That's a great comparison to Fever Dream. I hadn't even thought of that. That's wonderful. But I think another key part of Renly's legacy in terms of not in-universe, but the story has nothing to do with him. Because when we talk about Renly as a shadow being cast by the Tyrells at the Battle of the Blackwater... He starts to sound a lot like the Mummer's Dragon prophecy in the House of the Undying. And in A Dance with Dragons, we learn who that prophecy referred to. Young Grift, officially known as Aegon VI Targaryen, son of Rhaegar and Ilya Martell. Alive all these years, or so it appears. If the Tyrells are ultimately the ones casting Renly's shadow on the wall, Varys is the one casting Young Grift. He gets a big old villain monologue at the end of A Dance with Dragons saying so. And you can see how that qualifies as a ramping up of the archetype, an expansion of the scope and stakes. Varus is the Ur-Schemer, even more than the Queen of Thorns, more dangerous, more subtle, more frightening. And while Renly relied solely on his base of support in the Reach and Stormlands, they will be but one part of the coalition that appears to be forming around Young Grift. He's got the Golden Company already, the world's most effective sellswords, already conquering the Stormlands left and right in their scattered, incomplete state at the end of A Dance with Dragons. He's also got Ariane Martell heading his way to offer him all the spears and fury of Dorne, which Renly took for granted, but never actually had, very representative of Renly as a whole. Young Grift also has a, a small folk movement organized around religious anger at the elites, conveniently setting up camp in the capital, something Renly would have loved to have. It's as if the rioters we're going to see in the Clash of Kings got themselves together into an army, lacking only a king to organize themselves around. And then, of course, there's the kid himself, Young Grift, who shows precisely the combination of charming and worrying traits as his Baratheon predecessor. He is a laughing storm, associated with bright colors like Renly, glorying in athletic possibility and carefree sun-dappled days of wasting time with your bros. He knows how to get people on his side as we see with the Golden Company. And he's starting to get a handle on how to deploy his potent image, rather than just inhabit it. But he's also reckless, selfish, immature, coddled in terms of his destiny, despite being taught to fish and feel hunger and whatnot. Worst of all, he freezes up in the face of death. So while he has the potential to rise higher than Renly did, that also just means he has farther to fall. It's his foster father, John Connington, who says that line about the star, about trying to grasp it, overreaching and falling. Because if young Grift is the Renly 2.0, 
then Danny is the Stannis 2.0, and fire consumes. Mm, I love that. That's so well said, man. And uh, you know, I, I love how George is remixing history and legend, mythology, and fantasy, and all sorts of things to make a song of ice and fire. But boy, I gotta say, I love when George remixes his own content and context and spits out even better versions of the story he's already told. With Renly, he had an overly ambitious father-in-law who used Marjorie as his tool to gain royal power first in Robert and then in Renly specifically. Contrast that to young Grift, who faces a perplexed Doran Martell, who is very skeptical about whether this kid is actually who John Connington purports him to be. But that's where Ariane Martell comes in because she's ambitious and resentful. She'll be the one to she'll be the one to move armies to become queen of Westeros to fulfill her destiny that she's believed has been taken by Quentin Martell. Renly also counts on the Tyrells to whip reach votes in his favor to bring the largest army of Westeros has ever seen to bear. Young Griff will take the lords that Mace Tyrell took to war, who got screwed over by their liege lord when the, their liege lord took the Lannister side, and he will take them out from under Mace Tyrell in order to gain power and take King's Landing. Cressa notes that Renly probably doesn't have a maester advising him. In fact, none of the people around Renly really read like advisors, more like enablers as we talked about in Catelyn 4. Young Grift has John Connington around him, but as the boy grows in his confidence or arrogance, John Connington is finding it harder to control Young Grift. And then you have Renly's rush to Storm's End with his cavalry to confront Stannis and relieve his besieged castle. And that is remixed by George in The Star of the Winds of Winter with Young Grift having the boy marching to Storm's End to, quote, relieve the Tyrell siege, but in actuality to take the castle from Stannis' garrisons and probably kill every last motherfucker there. Finally, there's this idea of Renly not taking, not really thinking through things and engaging in bold, heedless rides of his cavalry to Storm's End without bringing his infantry up, which is kind of like Tyrion when he tells Young Grift that he needs to be bold, brash dragon to take Westeros, manipulating the boy to invade Westeros without... Oh, you know, the Unsullied bringing his infantry up. Oh, you know, like bringing his infantry up like the Unsullied or Danny's swords, the Dothraki, the dragons, Danny herself. Basically, these headlong rushes into battle and into danger are things that are both commonalities that are shared by Renly and by Young Grift in the narrative. And I think that George intentionally parallels these two stories and he builds on them. And I love this idea that you were talking about before about fire consuming and that if young grift is renly 2.0 and stan and danny is stan is 2.0 that ultimately it's a shadow that kills renly in a clash of kings catlin 4 and it's the shadow of danny's dragon drogon coming in to roast aegon and killing him like that's kind of i'm saying that a little bit too um gleefully i think but i think that is <laughs> i think that is a parallel that george is definitely going to be bringing to the fore come likely in a dream of spring in my opinion and there are different rungs in the ladder of power the fiery ladder you know, just Danny has considerably more power to play with than Stannis, and I think Young Grift will than Renly, and that that just makes it more destructive. Again, the the higher you climb, the more damage it does when you fall, and I think that's what the escalation of it means. Obviously, Drogon is more impressive, the dragons are more impressive than the Shadow Babies, and I think Young Grift is going to get farther than Renly. So we'll see we'll see the damage done and the ultimate articulation of the pattern, and we're seeing just in Clash of Kings, just the stage being set for it, just Westeros being prepared for it. Mm-hmm. So the last topic we want to talk about with Renly is to compare his book character his, to his show character, a source of, of considerable controversy even among the endless discussions of show characters versus book characters. Renly in the show is a departure from Renly in the books in a number of ways. The casting immediately signaled a different direction. Geth and Anthony does not much resemble Mark Addy, or even specifically an imagined glorious younger version of Mark Addy as Renly is in the books. Renly in season one really does not follow the archetype of Robert's young enabler at all. 
In a show-only scene, he even scorns Robert for his swaggering, violent, rapine ways while on the hunt that will lead to Robert's death. He wants to be a different kind of king from Robert, he says. Very different from Renly in the books. He openly declares to Ned in the show that he thinks he will be a better king than either of his brothers, specifically because soldiers don't make good kings, which is not exactly book Renly's <laughs> ideology. He has not been in a battle, but he very much wants to present himself as the image of the warrior king to take advantage of the same kind of stirring of feelings that creates as Robert did. When Renly reemerges as a king in season two of the show, he's considerably more sympathetic than in A Clash of Kings, with his most threatening, selfish, and obnoxious moments ironed out. His showdown with Stannis in the Stormlands is considerably more one-sided in terms of how it's framed for the audience, with the best example being that he makes peace with Catelyn in his tent right before the Shadow Baby strikes, completely the opposite of his last moments in the books, which are spent mocking Catelyn's plea for peace and declaring that the time for talk is done, he will prove himself the stronger. All of this stems from the showrunner's interpretation of the Baratheon brothers, who made it very plain that they feel that Renly has a much more uh, modern, sensible view of things. Stannis is unreasonable. Renly would clearly be the better king, that they said. Needless to say, this differs not only from our own view, but from how George has discussed these characters. He said he's seen intriguing ambiguity in Stannis and his actions. He says that Stannis is, in, in spite of everything he's done, there is a core of righteousness to him. And he says that there is, you know, you know, it's, it's a difficult situation in terms of the murder weapon. What if you had Hitler in the camp? He said about Renly that, you know, would you not approve any murder weapon to strike him? Would you give him a chance to survive and get away with his army? And, you know, the point there is not to compare Renly to Hitler in terms of morality, <laughs> but to suggest that he sees he's trying to get you in Stannis's headspace. He's trying to use that extreme example to put you in Stannis's shoes and say, what's the right thing to do here? Is it not perhaps, you know, as, as clear as you might think it would be? And I don't think that that, that same ambiguity is, is present there in the show, and I think that makes it somewhat less interesting. So I, I do think that Sho Renly is not a bad character. I think he's coherent on his own terms. I do think he's less interesting in context with the other characters and the larger themes compared to his, his counterpart in the books. I, you know, d to be fair, though, and to highlight something I like in the show, they were unbound by George's POV format, which allowed for creative freedom with characters like Renly. In the books, a character like Renly is severely hampered by the POV structure. We only see him via Ned and Catelyn, two characters who don't know him very well, and for whom he is putting on a very calculated performance. And that's not a criticism. I think it's appropriate to keep a character whose whole shtick is overwhelming your senses at a distance, so we as readers can evaluate him a little more skeptically. But the show's only limitations are what they can afford to put on screen. They don't have to stick to the perspective of any one character or set of characters. As such, we get intimate moments with Renly interacting with Loras in Season 1 and Marjorie in Season 2 that lend vulnerability and motivation to his character. I may still prefer the character in the books, on the whole, but these scenes are good examples of what a different medium can bring out of a story and a character. I, I, I agree with that. I, I think that Renly in the books is a richer, more fulfilling character, ultimately. I think he adds something to the narrative. I do think that D&D &D had a different take on Renly Baratheon. I, I do wonder whether his homosexuality, which was something that was explored somewhat ambiguously in A Song of Ice and Fire, but made more explicit in the show, as George noted in like 2012, I want to say, ended up being one of those things that kind of made him a more sympathetic character. And as we've talked about in the regular cast, that is one of the things that makes Renly the, that is one of the most sympathetic aspects of Renly Baratheon is his relationship to Loras Tyrell and his kind of closeted relationship to Loras Tyrell. I, I do think that there's the possibility, the potentiality that they knew that Stannis was going to burn Shireen and that colored their perspective and portrayal of Renly. But I, I'm, I'm 
going to I say that, but I'm going to argue against that briefly, which is to say that all of the Renly scenes we see in the show prior to season three, because of course Renly dies in season two, episode four, I believe, all of those occurred before. David Benioff and Dan Weiss had that conversation with George R. Barton where he revealed that Shireen, that Stannis would burn Shireen in the books. So that is interesting, I think, in talking about why Renly became off much more sympathetically. I think it's more about how they saw Renly. And I do think that there is an aspect, too, where they might have bought some of Renly's BS a little bit about himself, about being the best king. They took him at more face value than he perhaps should have been taken. Um, because I think we have the perspective of Catelyn Stark, which is really good because Catelyn has a very skeptical perspective of both Renly and Stannis. Her skeptical perspective of Renly, though, kind of like stems from her this idea that Renly is kind of saying over and over again that he does not mean to be a king of a broken realm. He means to like take it back and he cannot make it any plainer than that. So basically, Renly threatens Rob Stark. And of course, in the show, as you noted, he she he offers peace to Catelyn first in order to bring bring Westeros together instead of open instead of offering the sword. And then there's like the other aspect too, where there's this scene in the show that just kind of really gets under my skin, which is that Renly versus Littlefinger scene in the show where Renly, or excuse me, where Littlefinger shows up to Renly's camp and Renly's all like, oh, I don't like you. I don't like the look of you. I've never liked you, sir. You stay out of my camp. I don't like you one bit. That is not the perspective of Renly in the books, as we know. He is the person who is hanging out with Littlefinger, joking with him, has a generally generally friendly relationship to Littlefinger. But I do think like when we're talking about adaptation, it is important for people who are adapting story material to their own medium that they do put their own spin on the story material. I do think that David Benioff and Dan Weiss made some not great decisions when it came to Renly Baratheon, but I appreciate their attempt to do something different with the character. And I do think that there is some good stuff in Game of Thrones, namely his as I said before, his relationship with Loras Terrell is made much more explicit. And I think like, you know, as, as much as people in the chat are talking about that, uh, that, that scene about shaving, like the chest scene from season one, do you remember that scene from the show? That it's, it's actually kind of touching almost in a, in a way. Like I, I do see why that some people kind of reacted against that, but I do find that kind of that level of intimacy that they had really good for both characters and makes them much more sympathetic and makes Renly a more interesting character in the show. Maybe he wouldn't be the type of person who would do that in the books, but that's okay. You know, soldiers don't make good kings, according to Renly in the show. Soldiers make absolutely great kings, according to Renly in the books. I think that scene is, you know, cringy relative to the better scene we could write in our heads, but it's it's good relative to the nothing that we get in the books. So I think, you know, it's it's important to have those moments, even if they are kind of clunky. I do think there is there is a kind of a, a sweetness of what could have been that you do want to bring out of Renly's character. I don't think it should translate into to overwhelming sympathy to the extent that the Baratheon showdown becomes one-sided, because I do think you're supposed to preserve that ambiguity with Stannis, otherwise he's much less interesting. But, you know, uh, there's there's that, you know, line Catelyn has about thinking of Renly as a mourning ghost, you know, flying away from his body, and that, 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 that bittersweetness, I think, is is something to come back to with Renly. And I think that's what George tries to emphasize, like with Loras having that line, when the sun has set, no candle can replace it. And the, the poetry of that line is something something to linger with, absolutely. I agree, man. It is poetry that is worth remembering and living out in our own lives, for sure, and finding that person in our own lives that we can relate to and that can be the candle that the sun cannot replace, or rather the sun that no candle can replace. That is the actual line from the, from the books. 
And I think that about wraps up for this episode, this Patreon-only episode, which of course is not a Patreon-only episode about Renly Baratheon. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us. If you guys like what you hear, we have 26 other Song of Ice and Fire or mass media-related Patreon-only episodes available for all $5 above patrons. And we also have eight Fever Dream episodes. The first eight chapters of the story will be doing a monthly Fever Dream episode as well every single month. If you guys have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at NotacastASOIAF or shoot us an email at NotacastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. Join us next month on Patreon as we begin part one of our four-part analysis of the Winds of Winter, The Forsaken. And I think we're going to start the first part with kind of going over a background of kind of the story of the Ironborn going forward into The Forsaken. So we'll be covering things like Aaron Dampere, King's Boot, every single Victorian chapter. Man, I cannot wait to actually... I mean, can you imagine this? Now we get to like talk about Victorian's chapters in 2020 when we're actually going to be doing that, what, 2024 likely in the main cast? Exactly. So it's great. It's we'll so get good. every excruciating detail worked out ahead of time. It's perfect. But yes, thank you so much to the folks who helped us hit our 900 patrons level. That's great. It's amazing. We're always uh, humbled and, and grateful for it. That we get to do these episodes on The Forsaken now. We're certainly going to take our time with it. You folks deserve it, and so do we. So we're going to be uh, doing a part one that's yeah, not even on the chapter itself, but just everything that leads up to it, because part of what makes it such a big chapter is, is how it pays off, what, what leads up to it in A Feast for Crows and the backstory. So we're going to be covering a lot of bases there, and they'll be coming your way at the end of May. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll be out of quarantine by that point in time in our lives. Unless, of course, it's not safe to do so. Anyways, so thank you so much for listening. Thank you to you all patrons for supporting us over all of these years now. And we will see you guys next week for Tiering 8 and next month for Part 1 of The Forsaken. 